Good morning. If you have your Bibles, will you turn with me to the book of First Peter? And the first chapter of First Peter, Peter, and the first verse. We'll go from there. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were serving not, not themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. The word of the Lord. There's a popular narrative that a lot of fairy tales, stories, and movies are built around, and it kind of goes like this. You have... A character, a central character, could be a little kid living with weird step-parents, or it could be a man with amnesia, or it could be a husband in suburbia. But you have this central character who seems to suddenly, randomly, come into all these trials and have people, enemies, coming against him. And it makes no sense. His his life is, is not like other people's. He has all these troubles coming. And then, usually, in the course of the story, it comes out that there's something different about him. He has some special identity or some special destiny. And everything that's come about is because of that. And usually finding that out doesn't immediately make things get better. You still have the problems you have, but now you have an understanding. You have an end. You, you think about where you are. You, it enables things to be more endurable. Sometimes just knowing your context can strengthen you to, for what you're going through. To give a purely random example, if you are cold, wet, and hungry out in the middle of the woods and there are bears, that's probably not a pleasant experience. 
But just, you know, for a random example, if you were hiking the Appalachian Trail, you would know, oh, hey, I'm out here for a purpose, and this is actually part of my, my vacation and my rest. And suddenly, that becomes a much more endurable and understandable situation. Well, this letter is written by the Apostle Peter, the fisherman follower of Jesus who, you know, had, had his ups and his downs. And he's writing from Rome, which he's going to refer to as Babylon, and he's going to be drawing on some tradition to do that. And, and this whole letter is going to be rich with Jewish tradition. But he's writing to Gentile believers in what we would think of now as Turkey. It's actually Asia Minor at this point. It's um, going to be more European and Greek at this time than it is now. Um, and it's that's like the heart of the Bible Belt. That's when when the gospel left left the Holy Land. That was the first place it went, and it took root there. And Peter is in Rome, and he hears that there's persecutions and trials coming on these churches in Asia Minor, and he thinks, "What can I do to encourage them? What wisdom can I give them as a result of my life lived with Christ?" And he's he's nearing the end of it because he's. He's going to be martyred fairly soon. And, and there's actually not so much in this letter, but in the next one, there's pretty good evidence that Peter knows where he's heading. Like God has kind of let him in on it. But he wants to encourage the church. And this letter is that. He's going, to, he's going to kind of give them some wisdom about where they are. And then by understanding where they are, then they'll know why they need to be who they need to be, how they need to be. And that will make the trials more bearable. It will give them strength to hold up under those things. And uh, there is much material contained. Many narratives are, are, are woven into these verses. Uh, earlier this week when I was preparing my sermon... It, it literally, it took me over two hours to get through the two, first two verses because there are so many callbacks and there is so much going on here. Okay, I used the phrase. I was trying to dance around that. But much like the rest of Scripture, Scripture is wonderful. It is constantly referring to itself and calling back to itself. And it has this amazing ability to be like the world in that when you pull on any one part of it, it, it pulls other things with you. Kind of, and, and the people at the time knew that. Now, in the West, we've kind of adopted through the Enlightenment a kind of a different way of looking at the, the world. We, we tend to atomize things. We compartmentalize things. We give them labels. And, and we kind of forget that we're doing that to make them more understandable to us. And we tend to think of things as separate that they're really not. But the gospel is, is constantly attached to itself in many different ways. It's woven together. People are woven together with other people across history. It's all very integrated. And that's, that's, that's a good thing. When things are fully integrated, fully attached to their context, they have integrity. And we like integrity. And if you try and take them out of their context and make them stand alone... They lose that integrity, and when things lose integrity, we say they disintegrate, and that's not a good thing. So the, the first two sentences here are rich with the history of Israel. And there's some good things about the way translations translate these and some bad things. But Peter starts out and he says, To God's elect 
Exiles scattered through the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. He's doing a couple things here. One is he is saying, hey, you're, you're Gentile believers, but guess what? The languages he's choosing is he's placing them in the story of Israel. You're part of something. You have continuity with this. In English, we translate it exiles, and that's actually, there's good things and bad things about that translation. Part of a good thing is it, it kind of recalls Abraham. Abraham became exiled from his homeland to the Lord's sake. So when you're this, you're part of that story. But the bad thing is exile also has the context of you were cast out of somewhere, you were expelled. That's not the context here. These aren't people who were expelled. The word that lies behind exile there, paraepidemos uh, in Greek, has a surface meaning of foreigner, but it, its deepest meaning is actually somebody from somewhere else, which can mean a foreigner, absolutely, that's a usual, but it also means somebody of a different order of things. So when he's saying, hey, you're, you're, you're exiles, you're, you're different. Not just you're foreigners, strange, but you're actually from a different source. This is actually kind of calling back when Jesus is before Pilate and Pilate says, hey, are you a king? And Jesus says, oh, my kingdom, English translations will say is not of this world, but what Jesus says, my kingdom is not from this world, my source is not like your source. I represent a different thing. If I were like you, yeah, my fo followers would be taking up their swords right now and, and pulling down your palace to liberate me. You'd have a revolution like you've had before and like you're going to have again. But my kingdom's not like that. Well, the people here, Peter is saying, hey, you're like Abraham, and you're also, you're not of this order of way of doing things. You're from somewhere else. You're not just another tribe. You're different. And then scattered, that can have the connotation, when we think of something scattered, like, ah, oh, you know, I, I dropped the box and everything got scattered, that can seem very random. But this is more like distributed, more like when a sower goes and he scatters seeds. That's not like a random happenstance, that is done with purpose. It's like placed, so he's saying, hey, you're distributed throughout the nations, and you're different. You're part of something, and it has a purpose. You've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And he's bringing it back to Abraham and the calling of Abraham. Abraham was chosen for a mission. He was chosen by God to be blessed that through him, God might work his plan of redemption. People have read these passages and the notion of election and choosing and chosen to cast them in terms of salvation. But they're more functional statements here. You've, you've been chosen to do something. You've chosen the same way Abraham was chosen. And what are you chosen for? And you're chosen according to God's purpose, his destiny. There's a reason. He's chosen you by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Sanctifying, you were taken out. You were separated. You were made different. You were 
You were distinguished for a work, to be obedient to Jesus. That doesn't speak to salvation. That speaks to walking out discipleship. And the reason I say that is because we get too sprinkled with his blood. We think of being under the blood. We talk about the blood of Jesus making atonement. We talk about atonement. We usually think of being right with God, right? We're, we're messed up. We are fallen creatures. And because of that, we need a sacrifice to, to bring us back to God. The sprinkling is a little different. When you, when you had atonement sacrifices in the Old Testament, you would, bring in, you would bring that atonement sacrifice to the Levites and the priests to reconcile you with God. One of the things they would do is they would take the blood from the sacrifice, they'd slit its throat and they'd collect the blood, and they would use that blood, and God says the life is in the blood, and they would sprinkle it on the altar to make atonement for the altar. What did the altar do? Did the altar renounce God? No. But that atonement there is there's a certain sense that because we live in a fallen world, because we operate in a realm that's become debased, there's just there's just pollution that gets on you because of you are, where you are. It's like if you lived in Chernobyl, hey, you know, you might have a healthy glow um, or an unhealthy glow. And that there's just a certain pollution that comes with being in the world. And sprinkling, when you read it in the Old Testament, is always used to just take things that are ordinary and kind of prepare them for God's service. It's not reconciling sin. It's just recognizing that there's pollution in the world. And when you sprinkle something, when you sprinkle the vessels for service in the tent of meeting or in the temple, or when you sprinkle the congregation of Israel after they've been made, had atonement made for them, or separate from the atonement made for them, you're preparing them for service. So this whole thing is really rich. It's, it's looking back to that history of Israel and saying, hey, you're part of this history. You've been chosen to be part of this way that God intends to work his redemption and his blessing. You've been set apart, you've been called, and you have been prepared to serve. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he's given us new birth, birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Absolutely. This is amazing. You were dead. Your problem wasn't just you needed a new plan of action. You were dead. But God, in his great mercy, and the concept being called there, called back on there, is his loving faithfulness to the nation of Israel. Uh, if you think of Hebrew, it's, it's kind of the same idea as Hesed, that, that loving faithfulness. It's like because God loved you when you didn't deserve it and he is faithful to his call and he is carrying out this plan of redemption because of all that through the death of his son he's given you birth into a living hope through the resurrection of christ from the dead the lambs died when they were sacrificed to make temporary atonement but Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. He made atonement with his own blood and he was raised from the dead. So you're brought into a living hope. That is a hope that you're both reconciled now and going forward. You're okay now. You will be okay in the future. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Now because 
there's kind of been this traditional view of, of, of Scripture and of the gospel that, that owes more to Greek philosophy than to Scripture, where you have this idea that we're living in this fallen world that one day we'll be redeemed out of it. And, yep, you got, you got treasure in heaven, and you're, you're going to heaven, and, and that's where your treasure is for you. But, of course, the biblical picture is now God made a good creation. There's nothing wrong with matter, and he is redeeming the whole of creation. God in Christ was reconciling all things to himself. In Revelation, you have a new heaven and new earth, which is actually a renewed heaven and renewed earth, heaven and earth coming together. So when it says you've got this inheritance in heaven, it's saying your inheritance is with God. It can't be touched by the things of this world. But that's not a place you're going. That's something that's coming to you. That's something that is coming where you are. And it's talking about you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So he's saying, and this is you, and by the way, you're shielded through your faith. There's this really cool relationship between grace and faith. And because we're not in first century Roman culture, first century Greek culture, sometimes we misunderstand it and because of some of the problems of the medieval church and the way things were kind of brought back on course in the Reformation, we, 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 there were so many things added to the gospel and, and the desire to get, to get that out and say, no, 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 you, it's, it's, it's not all this external stuff. It's grace alone, through faith alone. You know, all the solas of... of as they say of the Reformation, the, the, the one problem I have with solas is, you know, which means only, is you, really hard to describe a relationship that's profoundly connected with a series of onlys, um, because they're never just onlys. And grace and faith, there's actually the, the two Greek words there, grace is charis, gift, um, grace, and pistis is faith, they actually describe a relationship they're not words that, are, that exist alone. They describe a relationship. If you existed, say you were, um, you were a horse trader in, in Athens in, in the first century, and you, know, you, were, you were trying to get a government contract or something, but you were just this horse trader and you, you had no in. Well, your friend, he's, he's a tailor, and he's like, well, you know who's behind me? It's this this guy up on the hill, you know, he's a, he's, a, he's a member of the council, he's a former Roman senator, and, and he's, he's my patron, he's my guy. I'll, I'll introduce you to him. And you'd go to him, it's almost like the godfather. What can I do for you? You know, um, why do you come to me on the day of my daughter's wedding? All right, I'm older than some of you. I, no, I'm not old, well, two of you. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, this is a relationship. You go and he would say, yes, I will help you out. I will... I will speak to the government on your behalf. I'll do this. I will be your patron, and you're going to be my client now. And there's this relationship. They do something for you, and as a result of that, you are faithful to them. You follow them. So that faith, it's not just, it's not just belief. You recognize you have received something, and in loving obedience, then you believe and follow somebody. So through that loving obedience, you have towards God who's done all this to you, you're shielded by that 
through God's power until the coming of the salvation. You're already saved, but there's also a consummation of that that's coming. And you're guarded until then through God's power. And I mean, that's really cool. It's, it's God's power. The Greek behind it, dunamis, which is, you know, the, the root of dynamite, it's, it's not just God's power. It's, it's like the miraculous power that God used when he raised Jesus from the dead. That is what is keeping you safe. That is what is securing you. You don't have to worry. Your destiny is safe. You greatly rejoice in that, even though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. You're not taken out of the world. You're still in the world. You're still in the world that is being redeemed. Things will go wrong. Particularly one of the first places, well, one of the first places persecution against Christians broke out was in Rome itself, but that was kind of a little thing. One of the first places where it was an organized policy and not an outpouring of a bad-tempered emperor would be in Asia Minor. As a matter of fact, one of the first evidences we have of persecution is a letter from the Roman governor of Bithynia and Pontus, which you will recognize were two of the places in this, to the Roman emperor Trajan. He's a man named Pliny, who's famous for a number of other reasons. And he, he, he writes to the emperor and he goes, now, when I'm persecuting Christians, how should I handle this? Is just the accusation okay? Or, you know, how should I handle it? And basically they said, no, don't just take an accusation, but if somebody's accused, bring them before you. Give them an opportunity to deny being a Christian. Um, don't go looking for people. Don't go looking for them. But if, if somebody denounces them, bring them before you and give them an opportunity to be deny being a Christian. And don't just do it once. Do it three times because you want to give them time. And uh, then if it turns out they're a Christian, well, then, yeah, go ahead and, you know, burn them because obviously they're stubborn. Um, and, you know, not good for the... Hey, what's the earliest ep evidence of persecution we have comes from this region. So... You're going to have to go through all these griefs and trials. It's interesting. There's been a, uh, an effort through scholarly motives to kind of recast persecution. There was a, a historian at, at the University of Notre Dame, of all places, a, a Catholic university, who um, kind of wrote about the myth of Christian persecution. And her thesis is that uh, persecution wasn't really that bad for Christians. It's more of a myth they drummed up to make people feel sorry for them. They weren't really persecuted for Chris being Christians. You know, um, they were put to death for not worshiping the emperor as God. And they would have put anybody to death that wouldn't worship the emperor as God, not just Christians. So it's not Christian persecution. Kind of missing the point. It's like, well, they can't kind of do that because that runs counter to their belief. Yes, the reason you're putting them to death is because they won't worship the emperor as God, not because they're Christian, but the reason they won't worship the emperor as God is because they're Christian. So it's kind of a little revisionism going on there, but that's, that's what's going on there. Now, we may say, hey, you know, we don't live in a time like that. Some may like to say we do. Oh, we suffer persecution. You know, I, I, I have to put my Bible in the desk, you know, when the kids come in. Oh, how you must have suffered. Whoa, the shame on your family from not being able to leave the Bible on your desk during class time. That's, that's not the same thing. We do have trials, though. Just by living in the world, we have trials. Now, 
Not one, two. There was definitely a period uh, in popular Christian culture at a certain time when some of you probably weren't even born uh, to cast everything as spiritual warfare. You know, you, you head out the door and there's a flat tire on your car and you're like, ah, the demon of low air pressure has got me. Satan has sent his minion of the laws of physics to bring me. Not everything is, but not everything isn't. Sometimes the circumstances of your life will just take on an unbelievable amount, a, a, a perfect storm of, of problems that by themselves may look innocent, but you, one day you realize that you have no area of your life that's not touched by problems. There may be more to that. There may just be living in this fallen world. But the point is, you're going to go through times like that. The promise of the gospel is not that we can go to God in prayer. Oh God, please reinflate my tire. But that we can understand what the greater purpose of things is. And that we won't be trapped in this thinking that this is the way just the way reality is and it will always be like this. We can see beyond the problems of the moment and we can rejoice in them even while we're going through it. And one of the reasons we go through things like that is so that our faith can be proven. Our faith, which is an eternal thing, it's better than gold. Gold is refined by fire and trials, yes, but it still perishes. But your faith, your faith is shown by these tests. Shown to who? Well, for one, shown to you. God's not surprised by your faith. He gave it to you. But sometimes you are. And it's encouraging when you come through something to go, oh, wow, that was, that was totally of God. To the people around you, to your family, wow. Ten years ago, you would have blown a top and said words that you're not saying now. Your vocabulary has changed. So these things give opportunity for... For the scope of God's work in you to be seen. And then Peter goes to this great thing. No, you have not seen him. You love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. This is really cool because it's coming from Peter. Peter was with Jesus. Peter saw pe Jesus raise people from the dead. He was on the mountain when Moses and Elijah came down. And he still managed to doubt Jesus. So this is cool coming from Peter because he got to see all that and still had doubt. And he's saying, look at you guys. You just heard about this and you believe. You didn't see him. You don't see him now. But you believe what you've been told. I often talk about the fact I was, was not raised in faith. I came to faith in college. At the same time, I was... Um, studying history and, and language and the history of the English language. And one of the first things I encountered as a new believer was in, at a state university, I'm reading this praise literature from the 7th century written in Old English, which is really cool. It's a very poetic language, very relational language. But I have this experience of recognizing, hey, these are, these are people with the exact same experience of Christ as me that my professor doesn't have, and, and they, didn't, they didn't know him either. There's, there's kind of a sense you think, well, I live in the, well, at that time, the 20th century, um, and Christ was in the first century, so I'm, you know, 19 centuries removed from him. It's, it's hard for me to believe in him. 
But if you don't think about it, you can think, well, they lived in the 7th century, so they're closer. It must... No! <laughs> they're still 600 years after Christ left the earth. They haven't seen him either. And they're still going by faith in what's best passed down to them from the church. And they believe, and they hold on, and they go through things. You believe in him, and you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, that can sound like that whole immaterial material thing, you know, like, oh, the earth is bad, but you're receiving the, the you know, your inner ghost is being saved and will someday fly away from here. No, nope, no, nope, that's talking about your whole life. You're being transformed, your emotions, your will, your whole way of doing things. That's being changed. That's being saved. That's being redeemed. It says about this salvation, the prophets who spoke of this this gift that was to come to you, they searched intently with the greatest care. They were trying to find out about this, trying to find out about what was going to happen to Christ. And it was revealed to them that when they were talking about that, they weren't talking about something for their time. They were talking about something for your time. So you're not randomly coming into something. This is part of the history of God's revelation. Those prophets back then were serving you. You're not randomly in this. This was a planned thing. You're brought in. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been revealed to you by those who preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even the angels long to look into these things. There is a cool... There, there are a bunch of things going on here. One, they talk about the grace that was given to you when Christ went through his sufferings and the glories that would follow. That's actually echoing right back to what he just said about the testing of your faith. Oh, you're going through suffering that's going to test your faith and there's going to be glory that results? Then we get this, not echo, we're really the echo. This is the original thing. This is like Christ. Christ went through this suffering and great glory followed, and now you're participating in that. So even your sufferings are showing you that you're part of this thing. You're part of this. You're going on with this. And there's this really cool little wordplay in Greek when it says, this was revealed to you by those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit. And uh, the Greek behind that is, is basically the, the root where we get evangelized from. Uh, it's like euangelizo, but um, and it's it's to to give forth a message and a very specific one, because the gospel, the message of the gospel is, we think of it as a, as a like religious word, but it was actually the announcement that there was a king. It was good news because it would mean stability. It would mean that there wouldn't be bandits raiding everywhere. There's a new king. The king is dead. Long live the king. That's that pronouncement. And that gospel is the pr pronouncement, there's a king. The world is not hopeless. There is a king. But that verb there, good message, it's then echoed. Even angels look uh, long to look in these things. Well, the Greek word translated angel there, angelos, just means messengers. And it's got the same root as the angelon part of euangelion, uh, the gospel. So it's, it's this parallel thing. You, you've had this announced to you, and this is such good news that even God's anointed messengers long to understand this. 
there was a uh, an Austrian psychologist, psychiatrist, um, who was Jewish, who was, was born in Austria in the early 1900s, and was during the Nazi occupation or the Nazi takeover of Austria, he was sent to a concentration camp during the Holocaust. And because he was a psychologist, he, he made observations about where he was. And he noticed that certain types of people perished very easily in the concentration camps and certain people did better. Uh, his name's Viktor Frankl. If you um, are in psychology circles or self-help circles, you'll have heard his name before. Uh, if you've ever listened to uh, Tim Keller, you'll have heard him before because he's Tim Keller's favorite psychiatrist. But he, he, he wrote this book called Man's Search for Meaning, and he basically said that people that understood they had a meaning, that viewed their lives as part of something bigger, were much more resistant to the trials and tribulations of the concentration camps because they knew they had a purpose bigger than themselves. He wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning and he talked about that. Well, what Peter is telling you, you have this meaning, you have this purpose, but there's a difference because Viktor Frankl and the pagan philosophies of the first century would talk about you, you search for meaning, you find meaning, you dig in and you find the hidden meaning. What Peter's talking about is meaning that finds you. Purpose came and found you. It called you out. And it, because it was bigger than you, it pulled you into something bigger. You didn't discover a principle. You were brought into a fundamental principle of the universe. So this is not the meaning you look for. This is the meaning that finds you. And because of that, because you're part of that story, whatever you're going through, it has a purpose. It'll be transformed. It's not just random suffering. I really appreciated getting to preach this uh, passage because this was one of those weeks where, you know, by the end of the week, if an airplane flying overhead had accidentally released a hippopotamus and it had crushed my car, I would have thought, yep, yep, that's this week. You know, it was just one of those where so many disseparate parts of my life were were going wrong. And it was, I, 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 and God has infinite patience with us. So he understands our prayers. Of, Why, Lord, how long? Um, you know, if you loved me, you would remove this hippopotamus from my car. Um, <laughs> but really, it's like, no, no, you're here for a purpose. This stuff's going to happen. But you're called to something beyond this so you're part of a story you have a purpose there's a big difference between being somebody that you're in an airplane and it blows up and you parachute to the ground and you find yourself in a strange place with people that are hunting you and trying to kill you and say being a paratrooper on d-day where you're like one of the first people in because this whole invasion army is coming in there are two different ways of looking at a very similar situation. There functionally might be similarities. Either way, you're going to duck if somebody's shooting at you. But in one, you're going to know, oh, hey, I've got something to do while I'm here, not just duck the fire. And I'm part of something. There's somebody behind me. So that's what Peter wanted people to know. And after that, after he gives that instruction, that context, then he'll have a whole 
rest of the letter telling you how to behave in those circumstances. But that comes after. It tells you who you are first. And then, oh yeah, because this is you, you're going to do these things. That's very different from the predominant pagan religions of the time, the mystery religions, where you have to do the stuff before you can get in on the secret. You know, you, you do the stuff so that you're brought to the place where you can understand the secret. That's, that's not Christianity. Christianity is, yep, you're in. All right, now that you're in, here's the, here's the how you should behave. But it's you behave that way because of who you are, not because you're trying to be something.